Today is March 31st, 2021. The new Georgia voting laws passed cause an uproar on the left. The Supreme Court hears a case against the NCAA, and nations across the globe call into question the origins of COVID. Welcome back, Split the Difference friends, and Split the Difference family to another fantastic episode here on Split the Difference podcast. We have been working tirelessly to bring you all the news and insights from the left and the right, doing our best to parse through all of that division and find that sweet, sweet truth that oftentimes lies right there in the middle. If you are new to the show, welcome on. Our goal for this episode and for this podcast as a whole is to try and look at both sides of the aisle, come about it with, you know, a little bit of reasonableness, some, you know, being level-headed, and do our best to try and uh, reach across the aisle, split the difference, hear ideas that we may not have heard before, and of course, try to find a little bit of middle ground. If that is something that you are interested in, then hop in with us as we take a look at our first story of the day, story number one. So for our first story of the day, Georgia passes a new voting law that catches a lot of flack in the media and on the left side of the aisle. So it was passed in Georgia in the state legislature completely along party lines. So no Democrats voted for this. It was completely done, passed by the Republican majority there in the Senate and the House. Uh, many on the left are saying that it is a direct step towards limiting voting, uh, especially against minorities, which we will get into a bit when we look at what the left has to say about it. Um, and it changes, I think, a lot of the voting laws uh, after Democrats had... I mean, absolutely historic victories in a state that has been red for a very, very long time in this past election cycle in 2020. So there have already been three lawsuits that have been filed against it, uh, which will, at the end of the day, leave it up to the courts to decide whether or not this legislation and this bill actually stands. Uh, the Republicans claim uh, that it was simply bringing Georgia into the same level of voting laws and restrictions that are present in other states across the country, and it was done to reduce fraud that could happen in the elections, okay? Because the law does not go as far as some other states in restricting uh, different areas of voting and people going into the polling stations and polling areas, uh, the question will be whether or not voting right contractions are allowed to stand because they may be limiting who gets to vote, even though there are more severe laws in other places. So uh, really what this calls into question isn't necessarily whether the laws uh, that are being passed are or can be passed, okay? It is more of, is it okay for states to make voting more difficult, right? To allow for voting rights contractions if they haven't already been present in that state before. Uh, so some of the provisions within this law are as follows. Uh, a requirement of a number of a driver's license or state identification call uh, card in order to request a mail-in or absentee voting, okay? So in other words, if somebody wants to be able to have a mail-in voting or have any type of drop box balloting of any kind or absentee voting of any kind, they're required to provide the number on their state-issued ID, uh, whether that's a driver's license or just a regular identification card. However, 
They do not have to have an identification card or a driver's license. Uh, They can also show proof of residency through a utility bill, a phone bill, a bank statement, or a paycheck, basically just proving that they live where they say that they live. The second thing is that it restricts people from handing out or selling food or water to people that are waiting in line. This was done on the basis of electioneering or trying to change someone's vote while they're in line. So coming up and saying, hey, you know, we're with the Democratic Party right here and we want to give you a free hot dog and a bottle of water, but also you should vote for our candidate that's up for election. Or the Republicans coming through and being like, hey, you look like you're kind of tired. I know you've been waiting in line for a while. Republicans are great people and they're here to hand you out nice refreshments like this Gatorade and a burger right here. We've been cooking in the parking lot all day because we want your vote, right? That's the goal around it. Uh, Second or third thing, it requires every count to have or every single county to have a ballot drop box. This was not uh, legally required in the past election. It was kind of done on a county by county basis, and there wasn't a whole lot of rules or laws around it. But now they have to be. There has to be at least one ballot drop box in every single county in Georgia. But. They have to be within the space of a government building and can only be accessed during business hours. Okay. They also added an extra Saturday for early voting and counties can choose to have an ex- a, have Sunday open as well. So originally when they were drafting the bill, that is, they tried to have a provision in that would make it so you can't early vote on a Sunday, but they ended up pairing that back um, because there are actually a lot of, especially black churches in and around Georgia that have uh, what they call souls to the polls. Uh, basically to get all of the church out uh, to to vote, uh, and they normally do it after church services on Sunday. So they pulled that back. However, they also shortened the early voting uh, to basically being just five days during the week, okay? So you they'll have five days during the week during the early voting process, which is three weeks in Georgia. And then they're allowed to have one Saturday that they're allowed to keep open. The counties are allowed to have one Saturday that they can have the polls open. Uh, But the counties can also choose to only have the polls open from 9 to 5 on those weekdays. Okay, so basically only during business hours. So uh, Biden was asked about this uh, not too long ago, and this was Biden's response to all of it. The new Georgia election law? It's an atrocity. The idea, if you want any indication that it has nothing to do with fairness, nothing to do with decency, they pass a law saying you can't provide water for people standing in line while they're waiting to vote. You don't need anything else to know that this is nothing but punitive designed to keep people from voting. You can't provide water for people about to vote. Give me a break. All right, so Joe Biden obviously is not a uh not a big fan of it, as of most of the left. A uh, little bit of a fact checked here. So um, voters are not barred from having water or food while they're in line. Uh, it simply bars people from going out there and handing that out with the intention of trying to convince them to vote for their party. Okay. Uh, the idea that it is inhumane to not allow vendors or political parties to hand out water is a little bit ridiculous, okay? People can still bring their own water when they're waiting in line, just like they would when they're waiting in line for literally anything else in their entire lives. Uh, they just, you know, you can't have vendors out there and political parties out there handing out and selling and giving water and food to people while they're waiting in line. So, 
what does the left have to say? So the left views this as a huge step backwards and more importantly, as a direct attack on minority voters. They say that restrictions were put in place to make it as easy as possible for Republicans to vote while making it as difficult as possible to vote as a Democrat. So they normally cite and they have cited over the past uh, couple of months the historic voting practices that differ for each of the for each of the parties. Okay, much of the Republicans, by polling data and just by historical data that looks at people when they go to the polls, tend to vote on election day and in person. That just historically is how most Republicans have tended to vote. Okay, that especially was true this past election because Trump told all Republicans that mail-in voting was rife with fraud and that they should show up on polling day. Uh, so Democrats, on the other hand, oftentimes vote and turn to other means to vote, uh, either by mail-in, early, or absentee voting, okay? And this is for a wide variety of different reasons, but for the most part, Democratic voters tend to vote in these ways, okay? They, they normally do not show up in masses uh, if they have the opportunity not to. They don't show up in mass on the day of voting to vote in person. So this was also especially true in this past election as well, as the Democratic uh, line and kind of mantra was you need to avoid the coronavirus at all costs. So you need to go to ballot drop boxes, you need to mail in your vote, you need to vote absentee in one way or another um, in order to avoid uh, you know, cause, ba bad things that could be caused by the coronavirus spreading around. Uh, they have also said that the requirement of uh, any type of state-issued or mandated uh, driver's license or ID is racist uh, because minorities are 88% more likely in the state of Georgia to be below the poverty line than whites, uh, and people below the party poverty line uh, typically are less likely to have a state-issued ID. So Democrats say that requiring some type of voter ID is is racist and pointedly going against people that would be impoverished and maybe not have the opportunity to go get an ID. The right. What does the right have to say? So the right views this as a crucial crucial step in handling and fighting back fraud in elections. Uh, a huge talking point on the right, especially since the 2020 election, has been basically ways to make elections more secure. Many say that these laws are just lining up with what other states do. Georgia isn't doing anything crazy. They're just doing common sense measures to be able to make, make sure that the elections themselves are not rife with some type of fraud. So for for example, the early voting in Georgia is allowed for three weeks before Election Day. This past year, it started on October 12th, uh, whereas in New York, which is a primarily left-leaning state, is a bellwether Democratic state, uh, actually only allows for one week of early voting, which last year started on October 24th. So Republicans are looking at that, and they're saying, well, Georgia is, is obviously not trying to, uh, trying to keep people from going to the polls early, and if Georgia is, then obviously New York is as well, and even more so, and they're democratic state. Um, the mail-in or absentee voting uh, doesn't require any excuse, okay, with under the Georgia law that was currently passed. So a dozen other states require some sort of valid excuse for you to be able to vote not in person in one way or another. Uh, that includes left-leaning states like Connecticut and Delaware, where you have to, you are required to provide some sort of reasoning why you're not able to show up to the ballot box uh, or to the a, a polling place in person. 
Um, and the, another another thing that Republicans are pointing to is basically up applications for mail-in voting are required 11 days before voting uh, instead of four days like the last election cycle. So Republicans are saying, listen, we're, we're trying to open things up a little bit more, but we're just trying to make it so we can verify the people who are actually voting. Uh, much of the right says that the left is fear-mongering right now and wanting to reduce the limitations so that fraud can run rampant, okay? A big argument and a big sticking point on the right is basically pointing the finger at the left side of the aisle and saying they want fraud because they want to be able to steal elections. So I think this law specifically has some things that are beneficial and some things that are not so much. Okay. Limiting voting to just business hours is obviously going to impede hourly workers from going to the polls because many of them obviously are not going to have the opportunity to be able to go. If you are working an hourly job uh, and you have to be in there from eight o'clock to five o'clock, you either have to choose to get paid for a couple hours during that day or choose to go vote. Most people are probably going to pay get paid because they need to pay their bills. Okay. And that's primarily going to to affect low income earners who typically don't vote Republican. Okay. There's a reason why in this bill that was only passed by Republicans, there were restrictions around voting either if you're doing any type of early, uh, early voting or ballot box voting that it had to be during business hours. They know that a lot of people that are low income earners can't do that. And they also know those people typically vote democratic. Okay. Um, I will say, uh, requiring by law at least one ballot box in every single county uh, is absolutely a step that needed to take place, okay? Um, I've also stated on this podcast before uh, and stand by still that requiring a voter ID uh, in order to be able to vote is not a form of voter suppression by any stretch. The idea that people below the poverty line don't have the opportunity to get or can't get a state-mandated free identification is absolutely ridiculous. Ridiculous. Okay. There have been multiple studies that have tried to dive into whether or not requiring an ID to vote actually reduces the number of people that turn out. And none of them have concluded that it has an effect on actual voter turnout. Now, I get and I understand the argument behind uh, people that are in poverty or people that, uh, you know, are below the poverty line or low income earners may not have the means by which to be able to get out and get a state issued ID. And I agree that the state of Georgia needs to work and pass laws that make it easier for people to get those state IDs, whether it's busing them to a DMV, whether it's whatever it may be. However, the vast majority of people have IDs and the that is the easiest way to mitigate fraud. One of the easiest ways. And that's one of the reasons why the United States does have an incredibly small amount of fraudulent election cases in and throughout the past, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 years. Um, which we will dive into a bit in a sec as well. Uh, in fact, there was a survey that was done by the University of Georgia that actually found that among liberal, conservative, black, white, men, and women, most people support the requiring of a valid ID for absentee voting. And the Georgia law doesn't even require for you to send in a copy of that, vo of that ID, okay? All they require is just your number. They don't even you don't even have to send them in a, a you know a copy of your ID with your face on it to prove that it's actually you. You just have to send in a number, okay? And don't think that's a far stretch or a far leap to require people to make. So I will say, uh, 
the idea that our elections are ridden with fraud is also completely false, okay? That is not true. You have Republicans on one hand saying that all of the Republicans down ticket that won, won totally fairly, while at the same time, uh, our election systems need changing because they're rife with fraud. You can't have, you, you can only choose one, okay? Either our elections are incredibly fraudulent and the Republicans won on fraudulent votes, or you have a, a system that works well and Republicans won fairly. You can't have both there, okay? There have also been so few cases of voter fraud and have actually gone through over the past 40 to 50 years that it's even difficult to get a solid study done on it. And the ones that have gone through and actually been successful in fraudulent voting have almost all been Republican, almost every single one of them, without, without fail. So yes, I am always for making elections safer and more trustworthy, but if the laws that are being put in place will purposefully make it more difficult for people to actually get their legal vote counted, that's a huge problem, okay? If you're requiring people to only show up on election day, that's a problem, okay? We, there's no need for us to be doing that anymore. Um, so there's definitely parts of this law that actually aim to do that, which are not great. So with all of that, that is the end of our first story of the day. Let's go ahead and hop on into our second story, story number two. So for our second story of the day, the Supreme Court today hears out an antitrust lawsuit against the NCAA. So the Supreme Court will hear this case today, and it's a case that's kind of made its way through lower courts over the past months and year or so. Uh, it's now it's made its way all the way up to the top, and that's where the buck will finally stop. It revolves mainly around the NCAA prohibition of compensating student athletes, and this has been a huge hot-button topic for a while. Um, the lower court rulings found that the governing body of college athletics violated a core provision of antitrust law that bars all contracts and combinations that restrain commerce. Judges ruled that the NCAA unlawfully suppressed competition for college athletes by strictly limiting the kinds of offers that schools could make for their talents, okay? In other words, the NCAA has been suppressing competition by not allowing colleges to freely market to players in a wide variety of different ways and compensate them in broader ways as well. The lower court rulings would basically allow for schools to be able to offer more things that would make it more enticing to recruit players, as long as it is tied to education in some fashion or another, which I know is very gray and, you know, <laughs> it just is what it is. So basically it opens the door for additional benefits such as maybe like postgraduate scholarships, internships, uh, computer equipment, study abroad programs, or limited cash awards for academic achievement of some kind, whatever that would look like. Basically anything that the school could justify to give an athlete if it, quote, helped them with school, okay? And we all know the big athletes don't even hardly do their schoolwork to begin with, so that, of course, is going to raise a lot of questions as well. But So there's been a really, really long time push for the NCAA to provide athletes with money or at least allow them to make money for companies that are using their image and likeness for a profit. So under the current rules, any jersey sales or video games or anything that the athletes are involved in and could be tied to a player, can't be paid out to the player, which is absolutely ridiculous, okay? In other words, you can, I can go on NCAA, a football game, or I can go on, uh, you know, literally, I don't know, any, any type of NCAA basketball game, and I can sit there, and that video game is making millions and millions of dollars, okay? And I can play with the player that I want to play with, and that kid, that, that person, whoever it is, doesn't get any slice of that pie at all, even though the character is constructed 
on them. It is it is them. You are playing with a Zion Wilmington or a, a Williamson or a Ja Morant or you know whoever it is when they were playing. So uh, we all recognize uh, that this may have a huge impact on the NCAA and how colleges are able to recruit and pay out players. However, this is also going to have a lot of broader implications in antitrust legislation as well. The vast majority of antitrust legislation centers around companies doing things that will cause the price of goods or services to rise that are purchased by an end customer. It hasn't really delved into how it affects the labor market, okay? Which is a seismic shift in antitrust legislation and how it's viewed. Uh, it is illegal for a group of companies to get together and all agree to purposefully pay people less. That's automatically like off the bat, that's illegal, you can't do that. However, this deals with organizations' balance in determining whether the association's restraints on, specifically this one, NCAA, on athlete compensation are reasonable and provide pro-competitive benefits. So a central issue in this case is how much leeway the NCAA enjoys from normal antitrust scrutiny in the name of promoting anti or amateurism, okay, and promoting the amateurism of sports in our country. In other words, they can be a monopoly in the sports world because they are working to promote higher education and use athletics as a means by which to do that, okay? What I'll say about this, I am I 100% for athletes getting paid. I'll just say that up front. I think all the players need to be paid if they have a if they are able to accumulate and make that money on their own, okay? The amount of money that college athletics in this country makes is bewildering to say the least. Literally billions and billions of dollars every single year and absolutely all of it is based upon the performance of the athletes on the field or on the court that get paid absolutely nothing for it. Coaches are taking home millions, the schools are taking home billions, and student athletes get scholarships, okay, to completely overpriced universities where education is never the main priority. If a big name football player at Alabama is not doing well in school, they're going to go in and change that kid's grades, or they're going to get them a tutor that does all of the work for them, and they're not going to dial back how much they're playing on the football field or dial back how often they're going to practice or getting in the weight room. If you went to a large D1 school you saw all of this firsthand like it is just known amongst all of the students there that the athletes that are big named athletes that are bringing in a ton of revenue for those schools they those schools aren't going to pull them off of the football field because they got a d on a math test that is ridiculous so i understand the importance of amateurism in sports but People are always going to be making money on something. That's the only reason why the NCAA is as big as it is, because they make a lot of money, okay? And I also get that oftentimes the people putting in the bulk of the work almost never get the bulk of the payout and the money being made. There would never be a box sent to your house on time if it weren't for the warehouse crews that are working in uh, warehouses all across the country for Amazon, right? But they're getting paid $10 an hour. I totally get that. understand that. But there deserves to be some sort of compensation for using the likeness and image of an athlete that has put in countless and countless hours to hone their craft. If they want to make money, they should be able to make money. It's also ridiculous. This is, I guess, the end, towards the end of my rant. But it's also ridiculous that most of the other professional leagues in America structure their rules in a way that promote all of this bullcrappery, okay? In the NFL, in order to be eligible to play, you have to be out of high school for three years, Okay. Three years. Because there really isn't any other outlet for players to be able to go and get experience and quality playing time outside of the NCAA, 
they have to go to college for three years. And then they have to go to the draft or try out for a team. In basketball, it's one year. That's why you have all the one and dones that you hear in college. College basketball. So you have all these kids that go to college for a year just so they can get airtime and be seen by the NBA. So dumb. And it's all because the NCAA has a total monopoly on amateur sports in the country and the grooming of athletes to go up to the professional level. If an 18-year-old wants to be able to get out of high school and go straight to the pros, they should be able to do it, okay? Let them. Who cares? Why do they have to fake being a student for a while in order to then be able to go out and make their money? No other, no other area of American life is that required. Ridiculous. So with all of that having been said, that is the end of our second story of the day. Let's go ahead and hop on into our third story and last story, story number three. So we're going to move through this one a little bit quickly, uh, but basically, finally, the world has decided to call out the World Health Organization and mainly China on all of the bull hockey that they've been playing around the origins of COVID over a year after it started and almost 3 million people that have died worldwide. The United States and 13 other countries got together and issued a statement that they don't buy what they're being sold. Okay, so uh, this statement was released on the United States State Department website. The countries include Australia, Britain, Canada, the Czech Republic, Denmark, Estonia, Israel, Japan, Latvia, Lithuania, Norway, the Republic of Korea, and Slovenia. And it says they all have, quote, shared concerns about the newly released World Health Organization report on the origins of the virus that causes COVID-19. So the World Health Organization released a final report on Tuesday. Uh, that's an scant to say the least, uh, which the World Health Organization kind of acknowledged, right? And they basically came out and said uh, that they have not yet discovered the origins of COVID, the source, the source of COVID. So the team reported difficulties in assessing raw data, among other issues, during its visit to the city of Wuhan, China, earlier this year, including being forced to wait days and days to receive final word from the Chinese government to even be able to enter Wuhan. In a joint statement by the United States and others, they said, quote, scientific missions like these should be able to do their work under conditions that produce independent and objective recommendations and findings. Uh, then they, you know, express their concerns in hope of laying, quote, a pathway to a timely, transparent, evidence-based process for the next phase of this study, as well as for the next health crisis. So the WHO said that a lab leak is the least likely hypothesis, which is, of course, supported and pushed by none other than who? the Chinese government and the rest of the world is pretty much looking at it. And they're like, uh, yeah, okay. Why don't you come let us take a look at the data, look at the conditions, do an independent investigation ourselves, and then let us come to that conclusion because I'm not buying it. The problem is of course, the Chinese government, which is nothing but a front for a total communist dictatorship. Uh, and what's scary is that if the international community just kind of sits idly by and lets this happen, there's no reason why China won't, won't feel that it has the power to get away with things like this in the future. If there actually was a leak from a lab in China that caused this thing to spread the way that it did. Um, they're working their hardest to keep the narrative tightly under wraps, not allow anything to leave their country that they don't want to leave. Uh, and pretty much the whole world, uh, won't do anything because they're too scared of China. Um, but if this was something that was released from China, especially on purpose, uh, then there's no doubt that they would have to face worldwide repercussions for their actions. So I will say, uh, the, the lab leak hypothesis doesn't necessarily purport that, uh, it was purposeful by the Chinese government but rather that it was an accident and that Chinese researchers were looking into diseases and viruses like COVID that would cause COVID and it slipped through the cracks and now China just doesn't want to admit it. 
Um, either way, I'm very happy that a lot of countries in the world have decided to stand up and be like, you know what? I'm finally going to say something. Uh, it is never good when scientists are not allowed to come in and actually do investigating and see what's going on and, and, and whatever is happening at that moment in time. So I'm really hoping, hoping that there will be growing pressures on this so that the source of COVID can actually be figured out and found. So anyways, with all of that, that is the end of our third story of the day. Let's go ahead and hop on into our last segment that we normally do on Wednesdays. It's called Bro, What? So for my Bro, What? This week, it has to be the new song that was put out by Lil Nas. He is a uh, pretty mediocre rapper uh, that decided to release a new song called Montero, uh, Call Me By Your Name, which has caused... I think a lot of maybe controversy is a good way to put it. Uh, the video, music video of itself is uh, Lil Nas uh, dressed up in some weird outfits, kind of floating around this weird little world. Um, and he eventually, towards the end of the music video, uh, is giving a lap dance to Satan. And uh, at the very end of the video, kills Satan, takes the horn off, horns off of Satan's head and puts it onto his head. Um, he then later decided to release uh, a pair of shoes. He's only releasing, I believe, 666 of these shoes. And supposedly within the soles of the shoes, which have a pentagram on the front of them, uh, there's human blood within the soil of the shoes. So uh, what is what is happening? Like what? I cannot even believe right now that we are sitting at a point in time where there is a pop culture artist that is coming out and releasing literal satanic worship items like that just blows my mind that we are at that stage in America right now uh culturally so uh that absolutely blew my mind earlier this week um if you have not had the opportunity to watch the video I guess go and watch it it is weird it is you know I guess just what Lil Nas wanted to put out uh, I was not a big fan of it, obviously. Um, but it kind of shows that we're at a pretty pivotal moment right now in our culture as a whole. And a lot of the things that we are okay with and promoting. Uh, and that is a little bit scary to say the least. So that is my bro what for the week because I literally said, bro, what is happening right now? So that is the end of our show today. Thank you so much for stopping by and for checking us out, for listening in. Y'all, as always, remember to go and find me on Instagram at Split the Difference Podcast. I'm on Facebook and YouTube at Split the Difference. And of course, my website at splitthedifference.com with one T. Go and find me in all those places. Drop me the likes and subscribes and the thumbs ups and five star reviews because they go such a long way in helping me to get my show to continue to grow. As always, y'all, remember we're going to do our best to stay level headed. We are always going to be reasonable. And of course, we're going to split the difference. This is Austin Taylor.